This year marks the 400th anniversary of the passing of Leonardo da Vinci, one of the most accomplished and talented individuals in human history. Among his many disciplines, da Vinci worked in design, architecture, sculpture, and engineering. A key to his success as an inventor and artist was his prolific approach to sketching. By some accounts, his surviving drawings number in the thousands, demonstrating a curious mind that meticulously documented the physical world while also imagining new possibilities. Very few of us could on our own approach this genius's capacity without some sort of assistance. But what if we were able to leverage artificial intelligence and automation to exponentially increase our options and outputs? Welcome to If When, Jacob's series of interviews exploring the world of emerging technologies. I'm Paul Teese, your host, and in this episode of If When, we will be discussing automated design with Matt Walton, founder and chief executive officer of YourQ, an AI-empowered retail delivery platform, and Natasha Luthra, Jacob's Director of Emerging Technologies. Matt Walton's career has spanned over 28 years of entrepreneurial and enterprise C-suite experience, most recently as Oracle's Chief Design Officer, Adaptive and Artificial Intelligence, focused within ERP supply chain automation. Across his career, he has invented, designed, scaled, and managed over 300 individual web, mobile, and cloud systems, for companies like AT&T Labs, DARPA, McKesson, IBM, John Deere, and GE Fleet. As the Director of Emerging Technologies at Jacobs, Natasha Luthra runs an innovation program which is focused on incubating transformational ideas, technologies, and tools to cultivate and validate emerging ideas based on client needs and Jacobs' strategic mission. She has spoken about technology, innovation, and architecture at conferences such as the Leadership Forum at Autodesk University, and she was also the 2018 Chair for Technology and Architectural Practice. Thank you, Matt and Natasha, for joining me today. For our first question, I'd like to ask Matt, how would you explain what automated design is to someone who's not terribly familiar with it, and what are some of the top benefits to users and to clients? There's a lot of different components to that that I think are going to fundamentally shift the way that we as creatives kind of think about doing products and, and product development. You know, from my standpoint, when you start looking at what artificial intelligence, machine learning, machine intelligence is meant to do, it is meant to replace the parts of the process that are repetitive and continually not adding a huge amount of strategic value. And so a lot of that part is when you're starting to develop and, and create workflows in the, in the concepts of doing product design and web design. Much of that's going to be informed by how it, users actually interact with systems online. And that information then is going to be incorporated into the automated design process where the systems will actually start generating UIs and interfaces based off of real-time and incorporated data from these different systems online. Natasha, I've got the same question for you. What's your take on what automated design is and what do you see are some of the top benefits, particularly for your clients and users? I think it's very similar to what Matt just described, the idea of taking repetitive tasks, tasks that we do over and over and over again. We do the same ones on multiple projects or when we're servicing a client. So the idea is taking the tasks that don't add a strategic value to what we do, compress that time by using machine learning or the machine in general to automate those tasks. Freezes us up a little bit more time for doing actual design work. I think that there is this 
yin and yang of doing things that we have to and things we'd want to. And in some ways, automated design helps us do more of the things we want to and less of the things we have to. Let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah, Paul, I was going to say too, I think when you start thinking about automated design, I think one of the most important things that people have to understand is how is the system going to fundamentally enhance the creative process versus trying to replace it? If you think about the ways in which designers and creators and product managers and whatnot, how we all think about the notion of visualizing requirements. And the fact is, is that in most systems, when you think about what's going on with Google and all of the material design motions and things to that effect, if you really think about what's happening from a technology perspective is on one hand, when you look at material design, the purpose of a material design isn't just to create standards, but ultimately what it's doing is it's breaking the system out into its consumable parts. So when you think about how certain templates need to work or how certain types of tools and controls need to be utilized in a system, Material design really is the way that that starts, that front end becomes abstracted. And so as more data is utilized in the system, the system itself will be able to understand what those patterns are and those tools are through a material design layout and be able to start constructing interfaces based off of not only best practices that are existing and currently there, but also in real time, A, B testing, as a means to really continually hone and, and enhance the ways that interactions and usability are applied to systems. I've been doing a little bit of reading about generative design, where it's breaking down components of a, a structure or a vehicle or whatnot, and then using automated design to look at the various options and set parameters around cost and resources and time for production and to give you variable designs that you can go with. One thing that I saw on uh, recently, on, it was on automationworld.com. They reported that Autodesk and Volkswagen had partnered together to apply generative design to a 1962 VW microbus and to reduce the weight and then the time for production. And they had decreased the weight of the wheels by 18% and cut development time from like one and a half years to just a few months. Kind of gets me to thinking, Natasha, what are some of the use cases that you see, some of the current use cases for AI-empowered automated design that have you the most excited? You know, one of the things that I find really interesting about automated design and generative design and AI is that you're fundamentally changing what you're trying to do. In some ways, what you're trying to do is frame the question appropriately. All you're doing is framing the question instead of trying to describe the answer, which sounds simple, but if we take a step back and think about it, you know, that's what makes it so different. So when I'm talking about generative design, for example, instead of saying, tell me the best building, I'll use building as an example, but tell me the best building with the best light and the best location, you can scroll that back and say, what does a building with the best location look like? It's just reframing the question, which I think makes it a far different way of thinking about it. Architects, we've been considered creators and creative, as Matt described, and switching from the idea of being creative to being a curator, letting the answers come to you and then picking the best ones from it. And once we describe it that way, I think the use cases then automatically sort of build on top of that. I can't wait to see many, many different kinds. 
we have a couple of really good ones in our program at the moment. So in the innovation program that we've been working on, for example, I'll give you two use cases. Uh, one of them is a tool called Scream, developed by Jacobs in-house by a team here out in Philadelphia. And Courtney Kennedy from our office here submitted this idea. The tool tracks sewer pipe for utilities. It tracks pipes and when they need to be refurbished or fixed or need to be reviewed. And what we do is we are able to tell when that pipe needs to be tracked or when it should be serviced. Right now, we use engineering knowledge to do that. We use historical knowledge to do that based on the information that we've had in the past. And what the idea for this program is asking to do is to use AI to be able to track based on a whole series of pieces of information that are critical to this, to be able to track when a pipe needs to be referred to. So the scale is relatively small in the sense that it's not a small program, but the task is very niche and specific. But using AI to be able to track that information, I think, is really interesting in how we're trying to do this. On the other end of scale of work, the other ideas that came in through this program is to describe a smart port. Chris Hutchings out in the UK submitted this idea, and he's trying to describe what a smart port looks like. We know what smart cities look like, and we know what smart buildings look like. But our Ports and Maritime group is trying to use big data and AI to try and describe what a smart port would look like. Those are two sort of on opposite ends of scale that I'm really excited to see what we are going to do with them. There's no limit to how AI can be deployed to address any number of issues or problems in the physical world. One of the areas of emerging technologies that I think is really fascinating is emerging technologies of virtual and augmented reality. And so my question is, what role do you see emerging technologies such as virtual and augmented reality play in automating design? I actually think from the standpoint of being able to, especially when you start getting into manufacturing, you start getting into hard product development, the ability to go in and actually construct in multiple ways and utilize the AR, VR, virtual environment to generate ideas. If you really think about the, the whole purpose and ability of AI and what it can do, it's really based on three things, right? It's leveraging the data, defining the function, and then some baseline level of measurement. So when you start thinking about it in those simplest terms, the ability to go in and start utilizing design from the data to at least start developing and informing the system as well as interacting with the system gives you a lot of ability to start prototyping in a much, much more rapid fashion. And now the whole purpose of prototype and how you capture that becomes much more let's just say it's got a lifeline that and lifespan that we haven't had before because the more we utilize that prototype in a virtual environment or in, a, in the setting to be able to kind of look at space and how that different product would fit into specific spaces, we're really, what we're talking about is generating a tremendous amount of data, which then can be utilized to enhance the design, the construction, the iterations on what those different products need to be. So you know, I would look at the AR and VR environments as a means to set up the arena in which these types of systems can inform how they need to construct and us as creators can go in and start looking at the different constraints in a very different way that helps us inform how the systems need to create these different solutions. So it allows you to create test data. 
it allows you to, to capture test data on the environments and test out various scenarios and then use that to create data sets that can then inform future solutions or alternative solutions. And then you keep growing exponentially from there. Is that correct? That's right. The AR and VR functions, much like it's just a paradigm. It's a construct in which you can create or build or test much more rapid fashion. Just like an interface for a web, a browser is the paradigm for the way that we see information on the web. A mobile device is the same. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just one more way in which we can visualize data. That's a really great way of saying it, Matt. I think the immersive piece of it is the critical part. Your description of visualizing data is important to think of it in that manner. Paul, one other thing too that I wanted to, to mention to you is, you know, I think when we talk about automated design, also what we're also not really talking about is how the systems themselves are going to change. So if you think about the ways that existing technology is, is we as humans are still inputting a tremendous amount of data and we are then looking at how we pull that data out of the system to make it actionable. In the model of machine intelligence and machine learning, the system is going to be processing the information and asking us questions and how we clarify that data. So that in itself is fundamentally gonna shift the way that design and automated design is actually going to be represented to us. Because at some point we'll get, we're on that scale where the human need to manually input data will be replaced by the machine's ability to auto-generate data and learn from existing data sets and create new data sets and, and probably even project out other solutions and things. So then the need to be dependent on human data generation will decrease. I kind of think we've moved into the new era of data conversation. Really, at the end of the day, that's the conversation that we're having with systems now is about the data. And then, Natasha, let me ask you, what should we eagerly look forward to about automated design development in the coming years? So I had a couple of thoughts around that. It's important, I think, to clarify what we mean by when we say automated design versus what we mean by AI, because they're not the same thing and they're certainly not interchangeable but they do build on top of each other, right? This whole data conversation that we are talking about is automating design shrinks the repetitive tasks, takes those pieces of data and makes them into patterns, if you will. It identifies those patterns. And then machine learning and AI, which is, again, I'm using them interchangeably but for the purposes of this conversation, but it is taking those patterns and learning from them, either through historical data, as we just spoke about, or actually learning on their own. To me, that piece of it is starting to get really fascinating when a machine starts learning on its own instead of simply recognizing patterns from historical data sets. I read this article in the New Yorker yesterday and I sent it to you, Bob, because I thought it was amazing. Mm -hmm. um, but it's an article about this reporter at large saying, do I even need to write articles for the New Yorker anymore or can the machine do it for me? It's a really long article, and there are pieces of that article that are generated by AI and this natural language processing unit. It is incredible the kind of linkage that language is having around this, right? Or the way that it's almost impossible to tell the difference between the human being and the machine. The main difference that they describe over and over again is that the machine does not understand context, it understands the word behind it. So it builds on top of the word it has learned. And they had the machine look at, 
I don't know, millions of articles on Reddit. But the idea of having a machine learn from itself instead of historical data is something that I find really, really, really fascinating about where this technology is taking us. I'm reminded of a quote by Groucho Marx. He once said, I'm not crazy about reality, but it's still the only place to get a decent meal. Um, (laughs) You know, we're talking about machine learning and about the adaptation of technology, but Matt, let me spin it around just a minute and focus on the users. And how can we adapt so that new technology usage becomes instinctive to us? So let me first say this. I've been in the creative and technology field for a long time. And, you know, the reality is for anybody that's in the space, they pretty much have to reinvent yourself every couple of years because of the speed in which technology is changing. You know, I kind of looked at it as from a creative perspective is, you know, with my experience at Disney as a character animator and learning how to build the process there. The reality is, is that the process will change, right? As us creators, what we'll do is we need to be thinking, like right now we think about systems end to end. So we go through and we build workflows and wireframes of every kind of use case or workflow to be able to represent what that looks like. You know, when you start looking at automated design, what it means for us is, Number one is it simplifies our job because really what we're going to be doing is developing a lot more templating from the perspective of building systems. The second thing that I would say is I would also argue that we have to start thinking about completely different interaction methods. Not so much that the UI will fundamentally change or the way that the system is going to ask us for information. But the reality is, is right now we design everything as a human process. A human is doing this in a system and needs to get this out, goals oriented. This one now is how is the system going to ask us for the information that it needs? What types of questions, what types of responses and and when a system actually what it needs is going to be the ways in that we as people need to start thinking about this, which is so much more different because we're thinking about much more of a conversational UI than we are necessarily strictly a workflow-based UI. And that in itself has a lot of completely wide open opportunities for thinking through how that would work on a mobile device or how that would work on utilizing a voice command or how that would work on the web and that not. So You know, from my standpoint, we're still a bit out from the standpoint of having a true, fully rolled out automated design systems and technology, because I think Natasha said a really important point, right? Which is without context, it's very hard to understand the terminology of what a word means. And that takes a tremendous amount of time for a system to start inferring that type of knowledge into its understanding. But I do think that we as designers and creators need to start thinking about how a conversation-based system is going to, and the ways in which a conversation system is going to ask us. The reality is it's going to be very difficult to come up with every potential use case. So it forces us to think through different models and the ways in which we want to represent those questions and that data conversation through a UI. 
we really don't know. I mean, we kind of assume, or at least I do, that dealing with an AI, that it's going to get to a certain point powerful enough that it's going to be like conversing with another human being, but it's going to have a markedly different worldview. And so the kinds of questions that it might ask might be questions or uh, lines of thought that I, I wouldn't in a million years think of. Yeah, so I kind of think about it in three different interaction models that a system's going to have. One is a confirmation. System's done something, and so it's letting you know. Two is a clarification. Do you mean this or do you mean that? And then lastly, the I don't understand, so I need this information. If you think about just everything from a design perspective, interacting with an intelligent system of some sort, those are the three interactions that are going to be really important. The last one is how did the system come up with that decision? Because one of the most important components to anything in an automated system is trust and that the system's actually working in the current bias that it has in its system that's not basically affecting the outcome in the wrong way. I think that's an ongoing problem across any discipline or any sector that's exploring AI is, is being able to explain why the algorithms generated the outcomes that they did. Explainability is a huge issue. That's the whole purpose of data analytics and big data and being able to go in and do all of this reports because all of those, the way that you visualize the data itself say, chart, whatnot, explains why a system makes the, the, the decision that it makes, or at least is giving you the baseline understanding of how it's inferring its decision. From my standpoint, the algorithm is basically doing nothing but representing that data and connecting those data points to infer and kind of drive a decision that the system's going to make. And so I think people are overthinking the problem regarding how do I gain insight into that decision. For now, right, Matt? Because for now, it is essentially pattern recognition at a scale that we could not compute, human beings, uh, for example, but machines can. But at some point, there will be a time when the machine does make decisions that we don't understand or it can't explain, which is really interesting because we talk about human beings and intuition and we trust that intuition but you bring up this really good point of there will come a time where we will have to trust and i'm putting air quotes around this but we're going to have to trust the machine's intuition and i'm not sure we know what to do with that and now this is 20 years out maybe if at all right mm -hmm. but there is something that we should think about related to that i say this as a father of teenagers people are nervous about the idea of autonomous vehicles, and yet we don't seem to have any issue with sharing the road with teenage drivers. <laughs> so Natasha, let me ask you, I mean, we're kind of on this thought of there's going to be very different thought patterns or perspectives that this whole development is going to engender, both in like how the machines think about problem solving, and then also how we as designers and developers and engineers and users attack problems. So you play a very important function at Jacobs and its innovation program. And let me ask you, from where you sit, how do you see organizations can use automated design in support of their innovation activities? So that's a really interesting question. And I think that more than an organization, we need to think about ourselves as innovators. Matt touched on this a little bit earlier as well, which is we need to think about how we solve those problems differently. And we need to think about how we change what we do. We reinvent ourselves on a fairly regular basis. 
But I think that organizations need to help develop this innovator and innovative spirit with our people to be able to change this because we don't know what technology is going to happen tomorrow or five years from now. We have a general idea, guess, that we think it's going this way. But for us to be able to build skill set around that, I don't think is productive enough. I think what's really critical for us as an organization and certainly us as a person working at an organization is to think of ourselves as an innovator whose main skill essentially is adaptability. On that topic of adaptability, we come to our last question for today. It's a question I'm going to ask both of you, and I'll start with you, Matt. The question is, how can one respond fast enough to advancements in automated design, and how do you stay current with trends in the technology? A lot of reading. I would actually argue it's more, I I spend a lot of time skimming. You know, I think from the standpoint of just keeping track of what's going on and how different companies, I find it fascinating to watch what Adobe is doing with their applications and how they're applying AI throughout their different applications. Photoshop, Illustrator, Fresco is a new one that they just came out with. I think the other thing too is always keeping a track on where's the pain biggest and what industries does this technology and this capability solve rapidly and then pay attention to those sectors. So when you start looking at manufacturing, how are they given the pressures that are going on with globalized manufacturing and how are people utilizing this technology and these different types of innovations to streamline and be more competitive? So always kind of looking at those industries that are under competitive pressures all the time, because those are the areas that you'll start finding are doing more things to create that iterative jump in order to stay relevant and competitive. For me, believe it or not, it's just start paying attention to the way that people, when you have a conversation, at the end of the day, the way that you carry on a conversation with a friend or a business associate or team members, that's the way that automated design and generative design is going to happen. And so applying those components and thinking about that conversational paradigm and even start applying that into the designs that you're doing and how you change the way that notifications work. How do you change the way that the system prompts you to do specific actions are very good ways of starting to think about how this conversational AI and this conversational interface is going to fundamentally function. Natasha, the same question for you. How are you staying abreast of the trends? You know, the first thing I'm going to say is that we don't all need to be at the bleeding edge of technology, right? If we think about it as we're staying behind or we're losing out, that produces anxiety that is simply not true. I think that we all need to be open-minded, of course, and we spoke about adaptability already, but every single one of us doesn't need to be at the bleeding edge of technology all the time. The important part for me, and I'll speak as an organization or as people, as, as how to respond to these sort of technologies, is not to think about it as a technology looking for a solution. We don't walk around saying, AI is great, where can I use AI and throw it on everything we're trying to do? <laughs> <laughs> but I think if we step back and Matt, you said something similar across other businesses, which I think about it within the organization as well. Where are our pain points? What does our framework look like? What does our process look like? And where are the opportunities that lie within that framework? And can we use a technology better suited to it? Might be an easier way for us to think about this. Both the use cases that I gave a little bit earlier and many of the ideas that have actually come in through our innovation program 
essentially started out like that. This thing is annoying, or I have to do this a million times, or there must be a better way to do this. And then using these sort of new technologies as a solution seems to be a better way for us to absorb this new technology, in my opinion. I think you had mentioned there was a book that you recently came across that you would recommend people take a look at. Is that correct? Yeah. And it's not actually directly related to the technology per se, but I do recommend this book highly. It's called The Future of Professions, and it's talking about professional services like law, accounting, and architecture, and what do we think it's going to look like in the next 15 to 20 years. And it talks about how automated design is going to take over a lot of what we are doing currently, and so what this profession needs to look like. It's a fantastic book, and it's actually really optimistic in many ways, which is why I like to recommend it. The thing that draws me the most about this book is it talks about the fact that right now, all of these professional services, and I focus on architecture or building design, we are only able to support a really small segment of the population because our services are so intensive in what we do. So if we were able to offload some of this sort of intensity of the work that we do through machines, think about the larger group of people, the many millions of people around the world that we could help with our professional services. So it adds a really nice optimistic feeling about how we could help more people if we were able to let machines help us doing some of the work that we do. So The Future of Professions, look it up. I highly recommend it. The Future of Professions. Well, there you go, folks. There's your book recommendation for the day. Well, Matt, Natasha, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about artificial intelligence and automated design. I know I learned a lot and I hope people listening did too. Thank you for sharing your insights.